0: What a day, what a night, what a morning. Morning, George. May you be increased. Uh, I'm getting too old for this. I really am. We spiked up that Hebrew today should have been like any other, but it wasn't. I appreciate our little talks. <laughs> the idea of uh, being able to put something out there, you know, the spoken word, <laughs> and try to wrap your hands around it. I'm sure if my men heard me being this gregarious, they'd be stunned. I enjoy our little conversations throughout all the years, George. I really do. They just seem a little one-sided. In fact, they're always one-sided. And that Hebrew, wow. He's the one that uh, (laughs) tipped over the tables in their temple, right? That young rabbi, he battled it out with the best of them and their rhetoric, right? arguing the scriptures. Wow, they hate him. And they went to Pilate. Pilate, he couldn't find anything wrong. Said he was innocent, but he whipped him. That should have sufficed, but no. Nah. <laughs> nah, they, they called him the king of the Jews. Couldn't have that, right? That puts Pilate in a bad position. Bring the emperor into this. It's hard enough in this place, these people. So the orders were given. I got my own. Told me to make sure it went right. Went right. What other way have I ever done it? It's always been right. It's always been done well, exacting, huh? Lead, follow, or get out of the way. That's been my mantra, right? I followed for, what, 12 years or more. I was good at my craft. And then then they promoted me. And things got different. That's been over a decade. I get out of the way. I'm wondering, George... Is it time for that? Should I just retire? That's what I've been working for. Today was different. You know I've done this a lot. Death. (laughs) A lot. This has been weird. I mean, the boys worked him over pretty good. We figured it wouldn't take long. It got weird. It got dark at noon. And And I don't mean sand or wind or storm. I mean dark. It stayed that way. After it was over, wow, an earthquake, rumors of all kinds of craziness. They say that the piece of cloth in their temple tore in half for no reason what that's about. But that Hebrew, that rabbi, Jesus, never seen anything like it. His focus, his ability to stay on task. Oh, he he suffered. They all do he never lost himself a great cry and he gave himself up I don't know what to do with that I don't know but I met the son of God The most awkward transition in a teaching ever. (laughs) This is going to get weirder here, because now i got to bring this thing around so I (laughs) have something for my notes. But this is liminal. We're all about transition, right? It's in our name. All right. For those of you that... uh, We say this every week... (laughs) Probably really important you hear this today. For those of you that are not, uh, or have never been here before, this is not normal. I'm not normal. (laughs) That's oft said. Um, We have a teaching team that's comprised of a series of folks. And so if you don't like me, uh, next week it'll be different. And it certainly won't have feedback like it was a rock show. I distrust summaries of any kind, any kind of gliding through time, any too great a claim that one is in control of what one recounts. I think someone who claims to understand but is obviously calm, someone who claims to write with emotion, recollected in tranquility, is a fool and a liar. To understand is to tremble. To recollect is to re-enter and be riven. I admire authority of being on one's knees in front of the event. It's Harold Brodke He's an author. To be riven, right? To be torn. (sighs) To be truly affected. That, to me, uh, is what this season is about to have skin in the game, right? To be a part of, not just a bystander. May that be true for each of us as we approach this story of Easter. How we go about that can take many forms, right? Uh, The opportunity to be drawn into the story, to make it more than just history. Uh, Going back and rereading the Gospels is a great place to start. All, all, four of them. The, the, just the last couple of chapters. You, will you, capture that Easter story. Um, taking a passage and engaging with it, right? And uh, lectio divina, right? Latin for the divine reading. Uh, I attempted, uh, including the feedback, to present a vivio divino today, right? A, uh, a live reading, as it were. Um, There are complimentary writings, poetry, uh, stage, film. Uh, If you haven't seen Martin Scorsese's Silence, and you got three and a half hours where you don't want to do anything, I recommend that. It's a personal favorite. Also, please, uh, Erica mentioned it, consider participating in our upcoming Way of the Cross. Uh, That'll be presented here on Good Friday. And it's a contemplative piece. Please take your time with it if you come. So we find ourselves today at the halfway point of Lent, right? As we stated in the opening art piece, this is a liminal season. It it goes with the name of our church. It's a time of what was and what is yet to come. A time of, I love this phrase that Catherine captured, luminous darkness, right? Today we'll finish our three-part series on what the cross means to me, and so For obvious reasons, that title, it it was given to us as a prompt as teachers. It's personal. And each of the teachers so far have have taught and brought in elements of something that is personal. So as Catherine said a couple of weeks ago, I thought, all right, that's me. I, I need to give you some context, some historical context, before I tell you a personal story. The cross was an instrument of execution and control that was about as dark as things could get. It was a political, right, and military punishment. It was carried out in a public place for a purpose, right? To shame the person that was crucified, naked usually, at a crossroads where everybody was rambling by and could see them in full view. Golgotha is a high hill in Jerusalem for all to see. It had a suppressing effect by the occupiers to keep down the rebels, It was to maximize humiliation. It was often condemned criminals and the lower classes, pretty much always. Those with no rights, runaway slaves, um, it cast a shadow of suppression for any of those who had threatened the law or order or ultimately the state. Jesus was tried and convicted and sentenced to the cross. A shame. Why did he go to the cross? Real quick, the Christian church at large has been wrestling this for the, with this for centuries. And here are four, and you've heard them before, but I'm going to bring them out again just so you can continue to wrestle with them as well. I've been a Christian now for over 45 years, and I have been wrestling with these my whole time. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I have an answer. I will give you part of my heart in this, but this is, this is deep stuff. The Christian church developed four distinct traditions, right, of why Jesus died on the cross. Christus victor, Christ's victory over sin, death, demonic powers. Sin is not just a personal failure, right? It's not just my failure, your failure. It's a corporate failure, right? It's the forces of death in creation. It's the forces of death in creation, Satan and his minions, fallen angel, Satan, have infiltrated every structure and are vanquished through the cross and the resurrection. We have the satisfaction theory. The fall created a debt, right? Something was owed that must be paid to restore God's honor and renew the creation. The debt is paid and honor restored through Christ's Easter work. The cross, moral example demonstrates God's love for us. And we are to extend that same love to others. And last but not least, God's justice demands that a price must be paid. That's substitutionary atonement. I will do my best to answer that question today. It's a question that in one form or another is a struggle, right? What the cross means to me. Years ago, uh, this story, and I'm sure some of you have heard it because I've told it before, I think, at a sunrise service years ago. Um, my wife and I used to be youth pastors in, in, a, in a big church. Our youth group was at one time north of 100 students. Uh, so good size, right? And uh, when we went to camp, we usually took over the camp uh, because we had so many students. We had 70 kids, I think, at this camp, uh, El Camino Pines. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's it's up by Mount Pinos, up in the range behind Ojai, that I'm sure right now is being covered with snow. Uh, it's a beautiful site. Uh, we had three kids at the time. They usually traveled. Well, we still have three kids <laughs> at the time. We got rid of them. No, we have three kids. They're now all adults. But at this time, they are all t- oddly enough, they're all uh, 20 or two years and 10 days apart in their birth dates. Exactly. Two years, ten days apart, all of them. Uh, so they were born on the 10th, the 20th, and the 30th. Very handy for me, because I'm not being able to remember dates. But at this, uh, at this camp, our youngest was two, almost three. So you can do the math for the other two. And they were running around with the students. The students were used to them being at the camp. Uh, and we'd been at the camp for, I don't know, two or three days at this point. We had done all the stuff. Uh, water balloon fights, uh, capture the flag, all of it, and most of the time, the students would care for our kids while we were caring for them. We would see our kids running amok with them, and they, they, it was just the greatest time in the world for for the littles. And throughout the day, we would keep tabs on, them, especially the little guy, because you know he was only you know two, two and a half, three, and he's you know toddling around and. At one point, I realized I hadn't seen him in a while. So I said to one of the girls that I'd seen earlier with him, have you seen David? And they're like, no, yeah, no, I think maybe you know Joe has him. And then pretty soon, it's all these finger pointings. I can't find my son. So for any of you with children or who have cared for children, you realize when you lose a child, it's absolutely terrifying. Uh, one time, the same kid uh, disappeared in Ross between the racks of clothing. And I finally found him by the little ripple as he was running and laughing. <laughs> but this time, there was no finding him. And I was starting to absolutely panic. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, kind of, well, it's hard for me to tell, actually. I can go right back to it, remembering what that was like. And I was minutes away from calling search and rescue, because I know that you, know, you don't want to waste time. If, if you can't find a kid in, in this area up there, it, it's nice because it's right off a road, but then it backs up to probably, I don't know, tens of thousands of acres of the Los Padres forest. And there's bears, and there's cougars, and there's all the things that the woods have to offer that as a father who's missing his two-and-a-half, three-year-old is terrifying. And so we got all the kids together, we sent them out, and they're calling his name, David, 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 and I'm running and I'm running, and I come over this rise... And I look down in this meadow surrounded by these pine trees and it's where we played Capture the Flag. And standing in the middle of the meadow was my son. And uh, I, I ran and I pick him up and he is bawling. And I'm like, where were you? And he says these words to me. He goes, Daddy, I couldn't find you. And it broke my heart. And uh, it was much later in, in praying and thinking about Easter that those words pierced me because it's almost an exact quote from Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from the cross when he says, Father, Father, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? And it was then that I realized, and I, every time I look at my... My grandchildren now, I think if I was God and I watched my creation nailing my son to a cross, I would have burned this thing down to ground. There would have been nothing left. I'd have just started over, right? I'm God. Thank God I'm not. Surrounding the execution of Jesus, there are many supporting players that are very illuminating. These people provide, in my humble opinion, uh, very unlikely points of light in what is a really dark story. I will mostly focus on our remaining brief time together on the one that you were just introduced to at the opening, uh, the, what I call the bystander. I think, to some degree, that's exactly what the centurion was. He was a bystander. Uh, a centurion definitely wouldn't at that point be getting his hands dirty. Uh, who was he, right? Well, we don't know much. We know that he was a man of rank and of power, a member of an elite fighting force that conquered the known world. He was in all probability, you know, from the Italian region. But what was his ethnicity? We have no idea. A Roman legion which there was one stationed in Jerusalem, uh, was about 6,000 soldiers, right? Uh, There are only 60 centurions assigned to lead the different cohorts of 100 men. So this centurion uh, would be readily recognizable by his transverse crest on his helmet and a staff that he carried, which was about three feet in length. Uh, It was used for beating anybody that he felt needed a a good beat. It was used for directing. It was used for telling somebody to do something like carry Jesus' cross member in the street because he couldn't do it any further. Um, He could use it, this comes to the power, to beat the enslaved. He could use it to beat the people of lower class. And he could also use it to strike a Roman citizen. That was the kind of power that a centurion had. He'd risen up for the ranks. Mostly, the ranks were made up of lower class uh, citizens, plebeians, not of the upper class. The participant. How do you say it? Anybody? How do you say the last part? part I always mess this up. Patrician? Patrician. Thank you. Earning his rank through his ability to fight and kill and to instill discipline and a lead. How did he find himself at the foot of the cross? Well, in the monologue, he was ordered, I'm sure, right? They were worried about Jesus' execution. You get that straight out of the text. And they were setting up all kinds of things, including guards at the end to guard the tomb. They didn't want this to go bad. Uh, it was political, it was military option. He watched as his men crucified Jesus and placed the notice of his charge above his head, King of the Jews. He heard one crucified thief mock Jesus and the other recognize his innocence and then ask to be remembered. He heard Jesus say to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And he watched Jesus die. Mark 15, through 39 says, at noon darkness came over the whole land and until three in the afternoon and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabbathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a little side note, pick up Psalm 22 and read it, and you'll see the overlap. We don't have time to go into that right now, but there's a homework assignment for you. When some of these standing nearby heard this, they said, listen, he is calling Elijah, because Eloi and Elijah in the Aramaic sound very similar, all right? So he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar. By the way, wine vinegar was kind of like grog in the British service, right? It was was a stimulant. It was a way of keeping the soldiers going. Uh, And so somebody thinks, hey, let's see if Elijah shows up. Let's not let him die. So they grab this thing and they put it on a stick and they put it against Jesus' mouth. He offered him to, to drink, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. First of two cries, with a loud cry. Actually, the first cry was when he cried out to uh, God. The, The second cry, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely... This was the Son of God. This centurion, a person well-skilled in the art of killing, a person who had killed many, many times in his life. He was a professional soldier who had spent years fighting and rising up through the ranks of the greatest force of his day. He was an expert at contributing to and watching human beings die. He watched and listen to Jesus for hours. But it was how Jesus died that caused him to say the words, surely this was the son of God. Think about that. He was the first human being in Mark's gospel, first, any of the gospels, to give this title openly to Jesus. A Roman centurion, an occupier, a pagan, a killer, that's outlandish, right? Outlandish. Paul, the Apostle Paul, right? The guy who wrote three quarters of the New Testament, who was a persecutor of the church, right? He wrote, and I'm going to show it to you in a second, basically to use a, a phrase of today, that we have a branding problem. Because you have to think that Paul was a missionary, right? His, his job was to go out and preach the good news, of Jesus Christ crucified something that was absolutely shameful 1 Corinthians 118 through 24 for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it's the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, And the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified and a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But for those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Renowned theologian Martin Hengel, from his book Crucifixion in the Ancient World and the Folly of the Message of the Cross, wrote, the heart of the Christian message, which Paul described as the word of the cross ran counter not only to the Roman political thinking, but to the whole ethos of religion in ancient times. And I would say now as well. It it, it is offensive, right, to this day. The idea of God and the ideas of God held by educated people. By contrast, to believe that the one pre-existent Son of the one true God, the Mediator at creation, the Redeemer of the world, had appeared in very recent times in out of the way Galilee as a member of an obscure people of the Jews, and even worse, had died the death of a common criminal on a cross, could only be regarded as regarded as a sign of madness, outlandish madness. It's, the cross is scandal, a stumbling block, foolishness. In so many ways, it's incomprehensible. I said at the beginning, right? I, I'd have burned the whole thing down. What does the cross mean to me? It means that all four of those atonement metaphors have come down through the centuries, contain some truth. The cross was God's demonstration of love. Christ's victory over sin, death, and the demonic powers. Jesus paid to restore God's honor, fulfilled his justice, and renew his creation. Victory, debt, honor, justice, love. There's some complex tensions there. And we are called to live in that tension. Call it outlandish or madness, It means that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the miracle of Easter Sunday blew things wide open. I know that by looking at the first person to enter paradise was a thief that recognized Jesus from the cross. The first person to call him the son of God was a Roman centurion. How open was it? I don't know. I know that the first thing we humans love to do is try to make things exclusive. You can be in, but you can't. Now uh, you you you're definitely out. We remember need to remember that that thief and that centurion. And in John's gospel, it's put best: for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that we would believe and we would act. The cross now and forever represents God's love for us and should always remind us that we are to extend that same love to others. That's what the cross means to me. Here's my epilogue, Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'd like to uh, invite the band to come up and uh, lead us in worship. And while they walk up, would you mind just joining me in a brief word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this season. We thank you for the gift that it is, and the gift that it was, and the gift that it continues to be. And Lord, we ask your blessing on not just today and our time of worship of you, Lord, but this entire season. May it be constantly on our minds. May we wrestle with this. And may we truly be the people that show your love. In Jesus' name, amen.